Welcome to the Kingdom Life Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Jamie Dixon. For more great content, visit klcmaine.com. Uh, go with me to Romans chapter six. Um, I'm actually gonna be all over the Bible, but I'm just sending you somewhere for a minute. <clears throat> um, I, uh, you know, we... we when we do the school of ministry, I've been between an internship that I did years ago in our school of ministry. I think I've been doing it now for seven or eight years. And, um, and it, it's single-handedly one of the most fruitful things that we do as a church. Um, I heard, I heard this, this study. I was, I was meeting with our, our team of pastors and leaders, um, from all over central Maine. I don't know if you know this, but once a month I get together and have breakfast with uh, pastors of every denomination, um, in our town. And, um, we are, uh, we are incredibly, incredibly knitted together as friends and brothers. And, uh, we have something incredibly special and unusual. And, um, and we, we fight for each other's hearts and, and um, we, we pray with each other and we partner together with things. And we have an incredibly strong bond with all the churches in our area. And uh, w- one of the pastors brought up this incredible statistic. And I, and I hope I don't butcher it. So if I get this wrong, don't, don't hurt me. Um, but he, they, somebody was measuring um, what is required and what is needed uh, for the advancement of the gospel in America. And they're, they're looking at churches, how many churches we need, and then how many leaders and preachers and pastors we need in the churches. And they looked at the number and found that we're significantly below where we actually need to be in America. There's, there's never been a generation with less interest in preaching the gospel, like from a, from a lay preacher perspective. Um, I think that statistics won't tell the true story because I think Gen Z is actually on fire for the gospel and it's about to change the world. Um, and I think some of the most significant leaders in the world um, that the body Christ have ever seen is going to come out of Gen Z. But with that said, um, they're looking at the numbers of the people going into the ministry or even lay preachers, and they're finding it's, it's going significantly under. Um, and they, they said that, that um, we are like 90% down um, on that number. And, uh, and they said, uh, and they began to look at Bible schools and they started saying how many leaders in the body of Christ are Bible schools producing and, and, uh, and where does it result like in the need? And, um, and what they found was is that uh, on the, the schools of ministry or Bible schools were only touching 10% of the actual need of equipping pastors, leaders, and preachers of the gospel in America. Only 10%. And what was interesting about that is you could say, wow, that's a discouraging number. But what, what it showed was is that the, require, the, 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 uh, the need of equipping leaders in the body of Christ was coming off of Bible schools and it was coming on the local church. And we all around the table started getting a little excited. They said kind of like, oh man. But I, I kind of chimed up and me, I was like, hey, wait a second, that's actually pretty exciting. And they go, I know. And we all started getting excited because the church is called to train and equip believers for the works of ministry. And there's a call and a mandate for us to train and equip. And and the school of ministry has become one of those things that has become uh, one of the most fruitful things that we do because it's training and equipping influencers in the body of Christ. To lead, uh, to lead in the in uh, the gospel in every sphere of society, 
And um, as we were going over that this week and we're casting vision and getting them acquainted with the idea of being influencers and leaders and raising them up and equipping, educating, you know, we, we've built out this whole program of, of material that I think is really dialed on the conversations it starts and the foundation that we laid. We've got seven or eight years of just going over new material and trying to figure out what works and what actually lays the foundation that bears fruit. And we're going through all of this. And I, I was telling the, the students, I said, listen, all of this is great. Thursday mornings, nine o'clock, 30 minutes of worship, an hour and a half of study and, and uh, in conversation, Q&As, breakout groups. All of that's great, but none of that is going to produce what, what is ultimately going to get produced in you over the next nine months. Because what I have found is there's an intangible with the school of ministry, there's an intangible when it comes to conferences. This is why we get all jacked up about conferences. Because there's an intangible. It's not about the speakers, actually. It's not, it's, not about, it's not about the things that they talk about necessarily. There's an intangible that actually unlocks breakthrough. There's an intangible about it that actually releases something that's never been released on your life before than in these moments. And what I've realized over seven to eight years that the secret sauce, everyone say secret sauce. Man, the secret sauce, so I'm titling my sermon today, the secret sauce. The secret sauce of, of these like seasons of training and breakthrough and encounter are not the material, but, it, but it's, the, it's the sacrifice. It's the sacrifice. It's, a, it's actually the space that's made. It's actually the altar that's created. And then all of the things combined where you're, you're being confronted to lay down your comforts and your conveniences. It, it attacks comfort and convenience right at the core. And invites you to say like, I am not my own God. You are my one thing, my one pursuit. And it's, and it's on the altar. How many of you guys know that, that when, when Israel needed fire, they built an altar? And, and the, the secret sauce over, over our, over, you know, the secret sauce over experiencing the fullness of the reward is sacrifice. I believe with all my heart that the fullness of the, the secret to experiencing the fullness of joy is actually living a life of radical sacrifice. I think, you know, anybody wants supernatural peace? I think supernatural peace is actually found in sacrifice, it's in yielding. Anybody want to live in, in miraculous provision? It's in sacrifice. You know, we're not, we don't want to live in this exorbitant abundance for our own pleasure. Sacrifice actually becomes the doorway that trains your heart for kingdom stewardship and, and brings you into a place where you're entrusted with miraculous provision. How many of you want to be effective in the sharing of the gospel? I'm telling you, the full reward of the gospel and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is all intertwined with the idea and the concept, the intangible of the gospel, sacrifice. In 2 Samuel 24, there's a story of David, man, 
flipping David. What a guy, you know, like what a story. I mean, like if you've ever struggled with shame and stuff, you should probably read David until you believe it. You know, somebody who's so disqualified, somebody who is, who is so distraught, somebody who may, who, who is counted out by society, then really disqualified by his sin and then consistently returns back to a posture of, of elevating himself. And over and over, I mean, literally, do you have a king that, that like God says, oh, David, he's a man after my own heart. And David, he's the greatest king. And yet he's the one that also partnered with demons and brought a plague over his entire nation and had to go and sacrifice to the Lord to turn back like a, a demon of, of peril that came on the nation of Israel. A guy who had so much sexual immorality in his life that he actually uh, murdered the man that of the wife that he had an affair with so that he could attempt to get away with it. David, a man after my own heart. What a story. We, we can get into all of those elements later. Any, would anybody enjoy a David series? Yeah. Okay, we'll do a David David series. Can they handle it, Tim? Okay. All right. Tim and I will arm wrestle, determine who, who preaches every night. Second um, Samuel 24, you have the story where David actually um, causes a census and they go out and they count the, the provisions and the people of the nation of Israel. But the problem is not with a census. The problem was the posture of David's heart was that he wanted to see how great he was. And in that, he partnered with a, with a demon of, of pride and arrogance that was connected to his position. And in that moment, a, a plague breaks out on the nation of Israel. David, realizing what he's done, realizes that, that uh, he's got to make a sacrifice. It says in, in 2 Samuel 24, it says that David, now I want you to think about why, you know, David is all of a sudden realizing that he needs the provision of God to come and to touch Israel. And so he's thinking over the, Israel's history and he's reminded of a story where Abraham offered his son Isaac to the Lord and God provided a ram in the thicket. Now, now, come on. We all know the ram represented Jesus, right? And, and uh, Isaac is offering Abraham his son, his one and only son. He was supposed to be the prophetic word, the fulfillment of the prophetic word of his life, father of many nations, his only son. And God goes, all right, would you lay him down for me? And then so Abraham goes up on Mount Moriah and he lays his son on the altar and Isaac's like, what are we doing, dad? He goes, well, and he gets out the knife and then a ram appears in the thicket and God says, don't touch your son. I've provided a lamb. And then Abraham fell on his knees and worshiped the Lord and declared, God, your name is Jehovah Jireh for in this place you provided for me, right? David in his, in his peril, David in his, in his in, in being so distraught, realizing his sin, he recounts the history of Israel and he goes, I need to go back to the place where God provided. And he goes to the place where God provided. There's a man by the name of Arana and Arana was a, a farmer and he had a threshing floor. 
And he goes to the threshing floor and, and he says, he tells Arana everything that Arana needs to know. I need to make a sacrifice to the Lord and I want to buy your land from you because I've been getting gold and I've been getting silver. I've been getting wood. I've been getting all together for my son Solomon and I want him to build the house of the Lord that I started. I want him to build on your land and I want to make a sacrifice to the Lord to turn this thing back. So the first thing he does is, is he acknowledges I've been building my house and I have to build a house for the Lord to turn this plague off of me and off of my nation. And he goes in 2 Samuel 24 and Arana says to him, David, I'm with you, bro. I got the vision. I understand what's happening. I want to partner with you. Have the land for free. Take my home. Have my oxen. Get whatever you need. And David says this, no, Arana, I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. And he buys the land and he buys the cattle and he makes sure that what he offers to the Lord costs him something. Why? Because he wasn't just in any old place. He was actually in the place where a sacrifice was being ready to be given. Uh, it was Abraham's own son and God responded to the sacrifice with provision. Now what's interesting later on is in 2 Chronicles 7, you have, you've got uh, uh, Solomon comes along. And Solomon, David was called a man of war and Solomon was a man of peace. David was a man of war because he scattered all of the enemies of Israel out of the land so that there would be no wars in Israel. But during that reign of David, he collected all the resources he needed so that the dream of his heart to build the house of the Lord. David was a musician. David was a singer. David was a lover. David wanted to worship the Lord all the days of his life. The dream of his heart is, I want to build you a house, God, and I want to be a priest with God forever. And, and, and God spoke to David and said, David, you can't be a priest because there's blood on your hands and you're called to be a man of war. But because that's in your heart, I will actually touch your son and he will build the dream of your heart. Come on, legacy. And so David goes to war, covers himself in the blood of his enemies, brings peace to the nation of Israel and gives his son a storehouse of provision that's needed to build the house of the Lord, including the threshing floor of Arana, which would now become the temple mount that you can go and visit in Israel. And so at this moment, so you, you, Solomon comes along and they build the house of the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the dream of his father's house. It's recorded in Psalm 132. Solomon wrote this, Father, would you hear the cry, or Lord, would you hear the cry of my father, David, that he would give himself no rest until he found a dwelling place for the Lord. This is a song being sung by Solomon, fulfill the dream of my father. And he builds the house of the Lord. And it says that all of the priests came together on dedication day, 2 Chronicles 7. And they come together on, on dedication day and they start to sing, you are good and your love endures forever, which is a song of Azariah that came out of the flames, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When, they were, when the flames were set and they weren't burned, the song of Azariah, one of the men came out of the flame, you are good and your love endures forever. Then Jehoshaphat sang it again in the valley when they went to, when, when uh, Ammon and Moab were about to war against, uh, against Jehoshaphat. 
They sang, you are good and your love endures forever. Then war break, breaks out on their enemies and they watch them destroy themselves. And then Israel comes together on dedication day and they sing the song of Azariah. You are good and your love endures forever. And when they sing this song, it says, all of a sudden smoke filled the room and all the priests fell on their face. And they encountered the Lord together and fire came on the altar, a fire that should never go out day or night, night and day. The priests would tend to the fire that was in the altar. And, and Solomon goes home overjoyed. Today was the day that I fulfilled the dream of my father, David. And the Lord visits Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And when I shut up heaven and there is no rain and I command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among the people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Man, you, you could, guys, you could go to Hobby Lobby right now and buy the plaque. Put it on your wall. If my people humble themselves and pray and seek my face. You're missing it if you just read that portion. He doesn't just say if you humble yourselves and pray. He says, because you built for me a house of sacrifice, let me extend authority that when you pray, everything will change. There's, there's a big if on that whole, that whole promise. Someone call Hobby Lobby. <laughs> Include the rest of it, man. Because you built a house of sacrifice, you have Abraham marked a place of sacrifice that then was recalled by David and the temple was built and then it became the very secret ingredient to authority that would come on the rule and reign of Solomon. And guess where God himself would choose to lay his son on the altar of the cross? Mount Moriah on the same hill that David offered sacrifices, that Abraham offered Isaac, any archaeologist or historian will tell you, it was on the same hill that the father would say, and now the ultimate sacrifice that will take away the sins of the world. This place was marked by sacrifice. Right before Jesus is getting ready to give his life. Are you guys all right? Right before Jesus is getting ready to lay his life willingly for you and I, the prize and the reward, the reward for the suffering is you. You are the reward that he was after. And it says that in Matthew 24, right before Jesus is to lay down his life, it says that verse 21 from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He must be killed and be raised on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Could you imagine? Peter. But he turned, uh, he, he, uh, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. He's trying to be an encourager. But he turned and he said to Peter, Man, 
This is wild. We should not read past this. He said, but he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is announcing the necessity of his death. This covenant that I've been prophesying, this coming kingdom, this reality of Jew and Gentile coming to see the Lord, freedom from sin, that I would become a high priest and change the law, that all would be welcomed in my presence. You don't understand. I must suffer so that I can step and bring you with me into a new covenant. That I can lay a hold of the inheritance that Adam forfeited at the beginning. And I can get the keys back for heaven and hell. And I could partner with you in authority to expand my kingdom. I must suffer and die. And Peter comes along preserve Jesus' life. Peter is trying to tempt Jesus to not offer his life. Peter is thinking human, self-preservation, self-glory, self-promotion. He's thinking, hey, your life just is, is only halfway through, man. We got a long way to go, Jesus. Death is not a good thing. Death is, would be an end to all of this. Peter does not have the mind of God because he only thinks of it as an end and not as a beginning. Amen. And Jesus answers him, get behind me, Satan, because the, the protection, preservation, and glorification of self is an antichrist priority. It's not mindful of the things of God. It doesn't carry the glory of God as the goal and the matter of life. And this is why Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, what's the first thing you have to do? Deny yourself. He's not saying deny your personality and deny enjoyment in life. He's saying deny all of the glory and the propaganda of self. All of the wants, all of the needs, my way, my needs, my wants, my peace, my joy, my advancement, my growth, my dreams, my calling, my this, my that, lay it all down. If you want to follow me, deny yourself. And he says, take up your cross. I don't think this is some like weird masochistic statement that Jesus is saying. Like, hey, just enjoy suffering. But I think he's saying is partner with my suffering. Like, do not deny the opportunity that when you go through suffering, that it's unto my glory. That when you wear shame for me, that it's unto my glory. And he says, follow me. Me follow the road that I've walked in. Say yes, even if it means you have to lay down your Isaac for me. Say yes, even if it means you got to lay down yourself for me. But whatever you do, follow me. Man, I, I grew up in a home where, uh, you know, it was not like abnormal or weird for my mom to be like, well, we, I had a dream, we're moving. 
And you know, in all these prophetic confirmations, all these different things happen and God's calling us here and calling us there. And the question was never about what about the weather? What if we don't like the city? What about this? And what about that? And what about this? And what about that? It never came into the conversation because there was no permission to question if God says, follow me, you say yes. So I've always found it so odd when someone's like, yeah, I'm just planning out where I want to live for the last 15 years of my life. I'm always like, what? You can do that? You can just pick somewhere? You think I'm here for the weather? Yo, I get all the opportunities in the world. I get it. I just didn't know you had permission to like chase it. I thought you had to say yes to the Lord and every step you take. I, I thought, I thought obedience was required. I'm not coming after anybody. Are you guys hearing me though? <clears throat> Jesus's free will sacrifice became the path to eternal life. There is no resurrection without death. He modeled to us that there's no life without death. And throughout the New Testament, there's no emphasis on resurrection apart from the crucifixion. There is not a single passage concerning the resurrection that bypasses the crucifixion. The crucifixion was not just what needed to be done to get to the resurrection. The crucifixion and the resurrection are one event that are eternal and it will forever be the core tenant of your salvation and the gospel experience. Is this all right? Look at Romans chapter six. I told you we'd get there. I have to go there actually. Hold on. Romans chapter six. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse two, certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live in it any longer? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Do you guys see it? There is no separation between the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And what Jesus modeled to us is, is if you want my life, you have to have my death. And Jesus said, he goes, deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me. But then he goes on and he says this, for whoever will lose his life for me will gain it. And, who, and whoever, um, uh, yeah, he said that. <laughs> what was the rest of it? In Matthew 24, so sorry. He says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me, for my sake, will find it. This all comes back to the denial of self. And this is why I say, if you want the fullness of joy, it comes through sacrifice. If you want to be effective for the gospels, anybody want to walk in kingdom authority? I'm telling you, the pathway is sacrifice. And I'm, I'm not trying to get into a weird land of like you purchase an encounter with God and you purchase a prophetic word, but I'm telling you, there's something about living sacrificial that pulls on the prophetic encounters with God happen when I'm living stripped completely of myself. Do you know why fasting is powerful? Fasting is powerful not because it appeases this angry God that wants you to suffer, but because 
I have to deny myself in fasting. And when I deny myself, the spirit is louder than self. And all the complications of mind and will and intellect are no longer in the ways of my imagination. And when I strip myself of self, then my spirit man is able to hear and to listen. Why are conferences, some people will come to the conference and radically get encountered by the Lord when, they, when they've been coming to church every single Sunday? Because of the sacrifice it took to be there in that room. And they, they marked it and they consecrated the place like Abraham consecrated it with Isaac and David consecrated it with, with, with uh, the, the offering. In that same way, there are moments. Why is the school of ministry? Why are they all just going to get their worlds blown apart this nine months? In the best way possible. <laughs> because they've marked the ground, consecrated where I stand. It's a sacrifice to be here. I'm not building an altar of convenience and comfort. I'm laying my life down to follow the Lord. Sacrifice is the secret ingredient, the core tenet, the intangible of experiencing the fullness of the reward of the cross of Jesus Christ. I just want to say a couple more things. Are you guys all right? I'm done. I'm just done. Let me just say a couple more things really fast. In Romans 12, 1, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How many of you guys know that sacrifice, in order to live a life of like participation and sacrifice with the Lord, requires that you no longer think in the patterns of this world? Number one, love is defined by sacrifice. In the Old Testament, sacrifice was motivated by guilt, shame, and obligation in an attempt to fulfill the law that was against them. In the New Testament, Jesus offered his, wife not out of, his life not out of obligation, but out of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son. Jesus then said uh, in, in John 15, 13, no greater love than this than a man would lay his life down for his friends. Jesus modeled sacrificial love. And if, 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 our, if our love is defined by our sacrifice, then you have to read sacrifice into every mandate to love. Are you guys hearing me? If you're going to recognize that love is defined by sacrifice, then you have to read sacrifice into the call to love. When Jesus says in Matthew 22, 37, to love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might, and to love your neighbor as yourself, then we have to read into that, how do I lay my life down for the Lord? And how do I lay my life down for my neighbor? Because love is called to be sacrificial. Secondly, a second thing I want to say is this, is that when we remove sacrifice from our discipleship, we will replace it with humanism. Say that one more time. When we remove sacrifice from our discipleship, we will replace it with humanism. Humanism is the belief that within myself is the capability of salvation. It, it is ultimately, man is the measure of all things and in me is access to the ability to enlighten and save myself. And we will, we will accidentally step into Christian humanism if we eliminate sacrifice from as a core tenet of the gospel. Sacrifice is confrontational with our humanity. 
because it will always elevate his glory over our desire. Sacrifice requires yielding when humanism demands control. Humanism demands that I will rule over the condition of my life. In any moment I feel like I've lost control is a moment that I feel under my circumstances without trust. I am overwhelmed. How many times have we heard someone have things go wrong in their life and all these things are going wrong and we start confessing, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm going to make it. And, and, it, and I, listen, I get that very real human experience, but what an opportunity to go. I was never living for things. I was always living for his glory. Amen. Sacrifice demands for self to yield to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Sacrifice inevitably sets our priorities in kingdom alignment, no longer living for the appetite of self and now live for his glory and his presence. In Hebrews 11, it says, God chastens those he loves. Why? Because he's refining you for the purpose of you becoming a partaker of his likeness. He wants to make you like himself. And what will he do to get you there? He will walk with you and he will chasten you like a father chastens his son. Why? Because he knows that you have potential of godliness on your life and he's calling you out of your, 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 child, your childish ways. He's calling you into maturity in him. We are in an increasingly humanistic culture that resists the friction of sacrifice. Things be true to yourself and follow your heart. And all the self-serving ideologies are pulsating in our culture. And there is an, there's an anti-Christ movement that's just, it's like, it's like uh, putting makeup on a pig. It's like we call it beautiful. We make it sound beautiful. All the Instagrams, I, I did this, 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 and this, and then I realized I can serve myself. TikTok world, you know what I mean? Like me, 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 my life, my choice, my ways, my this, my that, my that. I mean, so the kingdom is about denying yourself for his glory. And we cannot become a humanistic Christian culture. We have to be a counterculture that changes our minds from the patterns of the world, engages a greater reality of the kingdom where, it's, where I get to lay my life down so that I can gain a life that I can never accomplish in my own strength. What a joy that he has a life far greater than the one I can build in my own strength. This is the reward of my life that I get to lay down myself so that I can get a supernatural life in God. What a reward. You've got to change the way you're thinking if you ever want to live in that reality. Man, this is why, like, we talk about serving kids church. I know these are little things, or giving in the offering, or giving to a missionary in need, or coming to a conference, or blocking off time at work to go to school of ministry, and you go, oh, this is a church doing church things. No, I'm telling you, these can become altars where God will meet you and something significant will change. What got you here will not get you there. And sometimes when we go, that's hard for me, I'm gonna push through and do it. God isn't honoring the program the church built. He's honoring the sacrifice you're making. Lastly, sacrifice welcomes provision. Jesus said, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. Can we just, amen. amen. Do not worry about your life. And then he goes on, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Malachi 3, you know, says, you know, why, why are you uh, pruning branches without fruit? And why, why are you losing everything that you have? He goes, because you're cursed with a curse. What's the curse? God is not a plague that comes after your money. But the curse is, 
Because you are living for your own need and your own gain, you will be bound to the failing economy of the world around you. But he goes, bring me the tithe into the storehouse and watch what I'll do and your fruit will not fail and you will bear fruit in season and out of season. I'll bless you so much that your storehouse won't even be able to handle it. It will break you how much I'm about to bless you. Do you guys realize that every place of miracle provision and I don't know where the world is going, but I do believe that we are coming into a time where we're going to have to be a supernatural people believing for miracle provision. If we're going to be a people of miracle provision for the need of the world and what the revival demands, we're going to have to be a people that know how to be kingdom stewards. How do, we, how do we become kingdom stewards? By sowing the provisions that he's placed in our hand with sacrifice. We have to write comfort and convenience out of the gospel because if we want fire, we got to build an altar, baby. Stand with me. You guys all right?